0: As you're uh, as you're getting as you're getting a copy, uh, let me tell you uh, what we're going to try to um, do here. What the what the motivation is. Uh, once again, sort of um, laugh with um, J.T. in the service today when he um, when he announced the topic for tonight. I think he gave the the working title as "Why We." Thank you, Don. Do I sound that bad already? Okay, okay. All right, all right. Thank you. Uh, the uh, the working title that uh, that I was going off of. Thank you, sir. You said it wherever was why we should read more than the Bible. I, Jt said why we need to read more than the Bible, and I and I said, oh man, that's I'm gonna catch it tonight because right, who needs. More than the Bible, so let me let me provide just a, a point of clarification or uh, distinction on the title itself before we go on. I think it probably is, if you want, if you want to err on the side of caution, it probably is better to say why we should read more than the Bible rather than why we need to read more than the Bible. Because the fact of the matter is, if the only thing that I had in my hands was a copy of God's word, that would be more than sufficient. Um, for, ev- for everything pertaining to life and godliness, right? Uh, clearly, Christ is presented in his saving work as uh, a representation, the incarnation of the glory of the Father, uh, revealing uh, the way to be reconciled to our Creator um, so that he no longer stands over us as judge, but stands with us as Father. Uh, that being said, the thing that, that I want to try to press on tonight is to try to provide, I, maybe not a cor- corrective might be too strong of a word, maybe try a little bit of balance in uh, what sometimes I think is an error that we can drift into. And the error is something like this. Because we place such a high value, a high premium on, um, on the uh, uniqueness of God's Word and the fact that uh, God's Word is the only infallible, um, inerrant, um, word of revelation that's been given to us uh, because we do say there is nothing else that we need for life and godliness and so on and so forth. I think a lot of times, and along with that, you, you take into that the idea of Scripture alone being sort of the, the mantra or one of these creeds that, um, you know, that we live by. Um, scripture alone as the only prevailing, superseding authority that we have is right, but there, there doesn't really seem to be, I think even when you go to the scriptures themselves, um, but when you certainly go into church history, there, there doesn't seem to be an indication that scripture is the only thing that we can read. In fact, I think... Um, in light of what we see in the Scriptures, and then even by our own personal experience and the experience of those who have gone before us, that what we would find is that reading widely along with the Scriptures actually makes us better readers of the Scriptures and helps us to understand the Scriptures better. Okay, And so what I just want to try to do tonight is just walk you through a couple different areas uh, starting with uh, a biblical basis for why reading outside of the Bible, rightly understood and in right proportions, is a good and healthy thing, and then talking about things like the benefit of, uh, of creeds and confessions, or the benefits of actually reading theology, and by theology I mean a book or um, writings that are not actually the inspired word, but the works of other men and women, okay? So, here's, uh, here's what we'll do. Start with the, uh, the outline that you have, why we should read more than the Bible, and let's start with um, a biblical rationale for, for that statement. All right, so biblically speaking, I think that there are indications that it is good— for us to glean from the writings of other people, and we can start this way. Uh, One is that as you look at your outline there, the Bible itself refers to books outside of itself. So just because we can do this pretty quickly, if you turn in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 11, this is at the end of Solomon's life, or the record of Solomon's life in 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings 11, verse 41, we read, Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? The book of the Acts of Solomon. We, we don't have that book in, in the Bible. But the scripture is nevertheless, the author who was writing this record of Israel's history, or this portion of it at least, makes reference to what we would call a non-canonical book. That is, a, a book that is not included in the 66 that we have, as if to say, if you want to read more about the things that Solomon did, more than what we have recorded here, well you can go to this book over here on the side, pull it off of the shelf, or go to your local library and check this book out and you can read more about Solomon. It seems very hard, it seems to, to, uh, to stretch the bounds of, uh, of belief, to imagine that, uh, that while this book, we would, we would say, more than likely was not an inspired book, because if it was inspired, God would have providentially preserved it for his people to keep, just like he did all the other books of the Bible. Having said that, though, it, it um, does not then follow that because it's not inspired, it would not be profitable or let alone offer good information and a good record of the things that Solomon did. It's hard to imagine, if we can put it this way simply, it's hard to imagine that the Bible would direct its readers to a book that was going to be filled with errors or lead them on some sort of wild, crazy, historical chase. The fact that it makes reference to another book seems to indicate, hey, If you want more credible, reliable information, you can go over here. But for our purposes, this is what's being included in this record of Solomon. Okay? Similarly, in the New Testament, if you go to the book of Jude, so next to the last book of the New Testament. And if you start at... Verse 14, Jude says, It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So verse 14, Enoch prophesied, this seems to be a quotation from, once again, an extra biblical book known as First Enoch that Jude refers to here, not necessarily giving it any sort of equal or authoritative weight to what Jude himself is writing or to the writings of Paul or Peter. I think probably what Jude is doing, this gets into an interpretation issue, but I think what Jude is doing in drawing on Enoch is using another religious writing, one that would have been familiar with the people of his day, and is just using a portion from it to make a point or to support or lend an idea, sort of fill out a point that he's making about the judgment that God is sure to bring. So in a similar fashion then, Paul even can quote uh, pagan poets, Greek poets, right? When he's on um, uh, in the Sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17 in Athens, the statement that Paul gives about um, this one God who created everything, and in him we, uh, we live and breathe and have our being, um, there are, uh, is reason to believe that what Paul is doing there is actually pulling a line from a Greek poet who, who lived... A couple hundred years before Paul would have been preaching. And so what he does is he pulls a statement from an unbeliever, all, believe it or not, an unbeliever presents it to, these, to this unbelieving audience that he has because it would have been something that they would have been familiar with to the extent that this statement is true, even if that person doesn't know how true it is. Paul can adopt it and use it to get his people to the deeper or the essential truth of the gospel, which is revealed in the person and work of Christ. Okay? Pressing down a little bit further, I knew I set that aside too soon. Number two, not only does the Bible itself make reference to other books in addition to itself, but we also want to say that the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life doesn't preclude... The need for teachers and study. So just for the, uh, for the sake of time, yeah, let's do it this way. No, 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 let's do it because it'll be a little bit more fun doing it this way. Turn to, do the First John passage. Turn to First John 2. One of the things that, um, that often happens is you, know, you, you adopt the idea or the mentality that, you know, that all I need is my Bible and the Holy Spirit, and I'm good to go. And once again, you know, I, that's not necessarily something that I want to argue against in the essential truth that's being communicated, but in terms of that being sort of a way of life, that it's just me and my Bible, and we'll figure everything out from there, I think that is a little foolhardy or naive in the approach that comes to the Christian life. So, look for example in First John chapter two. I'll tell you what I mean. I'll show you what I mean by that. In First John two verse twenty-seven, John says, "But the anointing that you receive from Him." Uh, let's see, sorry, lost my place. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as has taught you, abide in him. You hear that? So here, here's a verse where you pluck it out of context. And you say, there it is, because I've got the Lord's anointing, perhaps a reference to the Holy Spirit. But either way, because I I have the hand of the Lord or or his calling on me, I don't need anyone or anything else in order to help me understand I, I have what I need. It's a curious thing, though, when you begin to think about it for more than just a few seconds, that if that really is an overly literal statement in the way that some people take it, we don't need anything else except for what the Holy Spirit tells us, why does John even need to bother to write them to tell them that they don't need anything else than the anointing that has been given to them? Do you see? If they truly didn't need anything else, John is wasting his time when he's writing because he's just merely telling them what they already know and they don't need to be instructed. Furthermore, you could say the same thing about the other New Testament letters as well, what Paul and Peter and John, and the, uh, or Jude, I'm sorry, and the rest write. So it can't be that what's being said here is, is that by virtue of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we have no need for other assistance or other resources or other means to study the Scriptures or to lay hold of a better understanding of the Christian life. Because along with that, if you go now to the second Peter passage, listen to what Peter says when he's talking about some of the things that Paul has written. So this is Second Peter, three, 15 and 16. He says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. But then he goes on to say, you make sure that you're not carried away. Peter says, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, about what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, some of the things that Paul writes are difficult to understand. If even one of the other apostles, Peter, finds it difficult at times to interpret some of the things that Paul writes the odds are pretty good that we also will find it difficult at times to interpret the things that Paul has written or the things that Peter has written or the things that John has written. And then interestingly enough, Peter goes on to say that the people, because Paul writes some things that are hard to understand, the untaught and the unstable distort what Paul has written which is another reminder that every heretic has a Bible verse that they can use, right? The thing that that makes heresy so appealing or so effective is not that it's just a crazy, lunatic, fringe lie, but the fact that the best sorts of heresy always have a small measure or varying degrees, a measure of truth in it, that just isn't centered in exactly the right way or that is mixed and matched with other error or other deceitful teachings. So not understanding what Paul writes, it's entirely possible then that unless you gain a better understanding or perhaps even more instruction or more teaching in what Paul meant, you could think that you understood perfectly well what Paul means when he talks about baptism of the dead. Or when Paul talks about God making Christ sin on our behalf. If you're not careful, even with the best of intentions, you can misstate or misinterpret what has been written. And then lastly, number three, all of this under the idea of a biblical rationale. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. By the way, the, the second Timothy passage at the end there of, of number two, second Timothy 4:13, is at the end of his, his letter to Timothy. And he's wrapping things up, and he tells Timothy, "Hey, Timothy, when you come to me, here's what I want you to do. You need to bring, bring my coat." and then he tells him to bring the writings and the parchment. Why, why does Paul need Timothy to bring him articles and books? Doesn't he know everything already? Because he's got the Holy Spirit, because, right? It could be that what part of what he's asking Timothy to bring are writings, parchments and, and writings that are Old Test, copies of Old Testament literature or something like that. That's entirely possible. We don't really know. It's also possible that what Paul is asking Timothy to bring are things that he has written and worked up in his growing understanding of the revelation of the Lord, but that regardless of what the case might be, the point is is that even the Apostle Paul says, as he's waiting in prison, I need books. Bring me my books. Bring me the Word. Bring me something in writing so that I can read and so that I can study as I continue to do my work here in this cell. Number three, teachers are God's gifts, to his church, and we ought to make use of as many as possible. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I was too busy talking rather than turning there. In the context of the first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is dealing with, uh, with a couple of things. One, he's dealing with the fact that the Corinthians are enamored in an unhealthy way with sophisticated philosophy and wisdom. And so because of that, the sort of crude message that Paul brings about a crucified Messiah, right, that's just sort of beneath us. We need something a little bit more fancy or complicated, right? We want to show, because we're a, a metropolitan church here, we're very sophisticated and high-minded, we're, we're, you know, Ivy Leaguers, you know, truth be told. We, we need something that's going to kind of meet our standard of education, and what Paul gives just is, is not sufficient. So he's dealing with that. And then along, very closely related to that, is he's dealing with these divisions or these factions that have developed within the church. They're, they're picking out sort of their favorite apostle, and they're identifying themselves by this, their, their favorite apostle. Like, this guy likes Peter, this guy likes Paul, this one likes Apollos. And then, of course, the trump card, always my favorite. Then you have some, I'm of Jesus Christ, right? Makes everyone else look foolish. But they're identifying themselves that way. It's interesting then when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, what Paul does not say. Paul does not say, stop spending so much time with all of these Bible teachers. Or stop listening to so many Bible teachers. Just take what you already have in your hands and be done with it. Right? You don't need anyone else. Rather, 1 Corinthians 3, start with me at verse 10. Paul says this. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Now he's, he makes the statement in the context of talking about the church being built or founded on the gospel, the preaching of Christ. So Paul can say that this foundation that I laid for you, the foundation of Christ, the foundation of the gospel, was something that I did. Other teachers now are coming your way. You have been exposed to them. And Paul does not say that they're illegitimate teachers. Rather, he actually says they're building on the foundation that I, as an apostle, laid. He has a very positive view, in other words, of these other teachers who are now coming to the Corinthians and giving them additional insight and understanding, or, per, or perhaps we might say, even a refined understanding of the things that has been taught them by people like Paul. But it gets even more interesting than that because when you go down a little bit further in chapter 3 and you look at verses 21 and following, Paul says, So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Paul does probably one of the last things that we would expect him to do. To a group of people who are sort of sectioning themselves off according to their favorite teacher, Paul doesn't say... Don't have a favorite teacher. Don't have another book that you read besides the Bible. Rather, he seems to say, rather than picking one teacher, why don't you just take them all? Isn't isn't that it? So, whether it's Peter or Paul or Apollos or anything, all of these men belong to you. They're your gifts that God has given you to establish. Firmly and securely his people to establish his church. When you, one of the, one of the errors, the things that, that is not appreciated is that when you say, I read or I go after this guy and this guy only. I only read Paul. But you, you never read Peter. You never read John. You're, you're not going to be growing. You're not going to be a well-rounded and a mature Christian because you need all of it. But by extension, because Paul is talking about men who are building on the foundation that he's laid, I think Paul would say to us in our present day and in our context, when he would look at the unbelievable amount of resources and materials that we have, Paul would say, I can't believe how rich you are. If you don't take full advantage of these riches at your fingertips, you're a fool. Right? Why would you not want to draw on the wisdom and the learning and the experience of generation after generation after generation after generation generation of Christians who have looked and studied and searched who have worked things out, who have put things to the test, who have said, we thought it was this, but you know what? Actually, after more thought and more experience and more trial and test, no, it's not that at all. We're refining this down for you so that you don't have to start from scratch with every new generation. Why would we not take full advantage of that? So here's, here's the appeal right up front to you when you start to go into things like creeds and confessions and when you start to talk about theology books and, other, and just other Christian books in general, okay? Let's assume for the sake of the argument, for, or let's assume for our discussion tonight, that when we talk about creeds and confessions and theology and other Christian books, let's just assume that we're talking about good creeds and confessions, okay? And good theology and good books. I, that's a whole other discussion, I know. But let's just assume for the moment that we are, okay? The point that, that I would want to make is, if you find it difficult... Right. If it just doesn't sit well with you, that you would, after spending time in the Word, you would also give some of your time to reading a book that is not the Bible, maybe one of the things that you could do to help you think through this in a more helpful and balanced way is to say that when I'm reading this book, I'm reading this author, I'm essentially drawing on the assistance of a teacher that God has given to his people. Right, it's very interesting. No one, when, when it comes to when it comes to books or when it comes to theology or something like that, it, it's very easy to be sort of standoffish, right? I don't want to be, get polluted with all of this other nonsense out there. I just want the pure word. But but very few of those people have any hesitation or reservation to come and sit in the pew under the preaching of a non-inspired mortal who is perfectly capable of making mistakes every time he opens his mouth. Why? Well, in part because you believe that in light of what God says in his word, in Ephesians 4, among other places, that he has given to the church pastor-teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the building up of the body, so that they can do the work in the ministry. If you believe that the people who are standing right in front of you in flesh and blood have the ability to be used by God to give you better insight and understanding into God's Word, is it so hard to believe that people who are already dead would not also be able to give you better understanding and insight into God's Word? The dirty little secret is, oftentimes, it's the people who are dead who give you the best insight and understanding into God's Word, right? We'll get to that later. Okay, so, all that to say, the Scripture itself would lead us to believe, or at least would open up the freedom that we would have in Christ to continue to hold fast to the Scriptures, to remain committed to the fact that the Scriptures are the only infallible source of authority, measure of authority that God has given to His people, and also recognizing the uniqueness of God's Word to draw on other resources and other tools to help us better understand, better interpret, better appreciate, even to better read the Word. Anything that's going to make us a better student of the Word is something that we want to take note of and something that we want to make full use of, okay? Now, let me say one other thing before we begin to shift to things like creeds and theology and things outside of the Bible, okay? Because God's Word is the only divine rule, the only authority that we have right now in this life, absent the person of Christ himself with us and, right, the work of his spirit, because it's the scriptures that we submit to, even when we talk about additional resources or tools or opportunities, everything that we draw on or use ultimately still has to be checked and measured by God's word, right? Okay, I want to make sure... At a church like Edgewood, I know oftentimes that just sort of is assumed. Edgewood has been so blessed with so much faithful preaching and teaching over the years. We prize the Word of God. It's one of the things that I love the most about this church. But we don't ever want to get to a point where we assume that we all know that, right? So it needs to be said. Even the best sorts of theology books, even the best Christian writings or devotional works or something like that, always ultimately have to be brought under the light of God's Word and have to be judged and made normal by the norming influence of the Scriptures. Okay? Don, were you going to jump in just for a moment? Do you have a question? The Scripture, yes. 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 Right. Yeah, at the same time though, but um Don is saying um for the uh For the longest time, and this is true, this is also a a principle or a general rule of Bible reading or Bible interpretation, Scripture interprets Scripture, right? So if you have one verse that seems a little vague or unclear, if you can find another verse that seems to shed light on it, we'll use the clearer verse to maybe clear your view of this sort of opaque or ambiguous verse, right? Setting aside, well, no, I, yeah, let me get it this way. Uh, let me do it in, in a short way. Number one, um, that still doesn't still doesn't get around the fact that God has given teachers to the church, right? And I and I know that Don is not objecting to that to that notion, right? But while the scriptures are sufficient in every way for everything that we need pertaining to salvation and life and godliness, we do need assistance to grow in our understanding of God's Word. Otherwise, we would not have been given pastors and teachers or pastor-teachers. Another thing to consider, though, is that also the the scriptures indicate that one of the ways that God helps us to grow in wisdom is by growing in wisdom with one another, right? More often than not, when you look in the scriptures, the person who isolates themselves is almost always headed for trouble, right? When you begin to view yourself and your study and your work as self-sufficient, I don't need the input or the counsel, or the advice, or the correction of anyone else, that's a bad, bad sign, right? The worst sorts of heresies have been developed that way. So it's not to say that the Scriptures don't help us understand other portions of the Scriptures. It is to acknowledge all of that, but it is to say that at a certain point, we're always going to begin to reach beyond ourselves to our neighbor, to our brother and sister, to those who have studied longer than we have, or who have greater skills in certain respects of study, right, and, and of course we'd be foolish not to. Once again, every good and perfect gift is from above. If God gives godly men and women in a body, that is a good thing that He's done. It's a gift to us so that we can grow in the knowledge of His Word, and we ought to take full advantage of that. If God in his goodness has seen to it that from the very beginning at Pentecost all the way up to 2023, there has never been a point in time where his church has ceased to exist, but that there has been a steady presence of God's people at all times, in almost all places, right? that is a gift that we ought to draw on. Other people's experiences... Their testimony to the faithfulness and the goodness of God. Okay. We need to we need to move. Creeds and confessions. Let me ma- let me articulate the difference. Go ahead, Ray. To really go out in an extreme like that, you'd have to be an expert in Hebrew and Greek. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. What see, this is why we need one another. I would I would not have remembered or Obviously, I didn't remember to bring that point up. Yeah. The very fact that you have a Bible in your hand that you can read in your own native tongue, right, is itself evidence of the fact that you need scholars that will help you become a better reader of the Bible. Unless your native tongue is Biblical Hebrew, not modern Hebrew even, Biblical Hebrew. Unless your native tongue is Koine Greek, not modern Greek, right? You need scholars in order to do what you're doing right now. Thank you, Ray. See, there it is. We can just pack up now and go home. All right, creeds and confessions. Let me just make a, a, just a, a brief statement about the difference between the two, give a couple of examples, and then give some, uh, some reasons why it would be to your benefit to take a look at some of, the, some of the old Christian creeds and confessions that have been developed through the history of the church. So a creed, what we mean by a creed, is a statement of necessary, or you could say a statement of the non-negotiable beliefs for the Christian faith. Creeds set a boundary between orthodoxy and heresy. In other words, when a creed sets the, the, the fence line, so to speak, it says, anything within this boundary is okay, anything outside of it is automatically error and heretical, right? It's very pronounced. In complementing creeds are confessions, sorry, an example of a creed, the Nicene Creed, which gives you statements about the, uh, the Trinitarian existence of God, the nature of the Son, fully divine, yet fully manned, so on and so forth. The Apostles' Creed, uh, the Athanasian Creed, those will be examples of that. If you would deny uh, what is in the Nicene Creed, Christians of all generations have said, this is just non-negotiable. Anyone who's outside of this is outside of the faith altogether. Confessions, on the other hand, tend to be more exhaustive explanations of the Christian faith, particularly to distinguish one denomination from another. So you have things like the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, sometimes called the Second London Confession. That would be, obviously, as the name implies, a confession of faith, an articulation of the doctrinal beliefs of Baptists. You have the Westminster Confession, which would be an articulation, a statement of the doctrinal beliefs of Presbyterians. You have the 39 articles, which would be a doctrinal statement of the beliefs of Anglicans, right? And and on and on it goes. In many cases, there can be a lot of overlap in some of these confessions. So for example, just use just taking the 1689 Baptist Confession and the Westminster Confession. If you go and you compare the two, even though the one is associated with Presbyterians and the other is associated with Baptists, what you find is that the the men who wrote the, the Baptist Confession largely took the bulk of what was in the Westminster Confession. They didn't have copy and paste back then, but if they did, that's what they would have done. They copied and pasted it with a few changes here or there when it came to things like baptism. right? Presbyterians do infant baptism. And Baptists say, no, baptism is only for those who themselves have come into knowingly faith, saving faith in Christ. And then maybe some statements about the way that the government relates to the local church and so on and so forth. Okay? But those are some things. The, the difference then between a creed and a confession, it is possible at some points to find areas of disagreement with a confession. And you could still be considered to be within the faith. Whereas if you were to step away from or deny a point in one of the major Christian creeds, well, you're outside of the faith at that point. Okay? Personally, if you're not in the Baptist Confession, I don't consider you in at all. But <laughs> I am kid, I kid, I kid, I kid. Okay, so here are the benefits of, of creeds and confessions. And by the way, let me just show you an example. You can do things like this online. Look at... Just so, right, this is the Baptist Confession of Faith with the Baptist Catechism. So catechisms a lot of times came with the confessions. It was a series of questions and answers that, that was used to teach, whether it was children or people who were new to the faith, it was an easy way to teach them the basics of the faith. You can, you can find little books like this online, little paperbacks. I have found this, even as a pastor, so helpful sometimes. Someone will ask me a question, and I think that I know, well, no, sometimes I even know that I know it, but I'm like, you know what, just to make sure I don't misspeak, let me pull something off the shelf real quick and make sure that I'm, I'm not misremembering or misquoting anything, and I'll turn and I'll look, right? Or sometimes I just want something to read that's going to stimulate my thinking. Am I, sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. You can also find things like this, rooted and grounded, a light modernization of the 1689 Baptist Confession. This was gifted to me. Just a reminder, I always accept free gifts in the form of books. All right, reasons why you might benefit from creeds and confessions. Number one, creeds and confessions articulate what the Bible means. All right? If you have ever been asked... Why does the Bible say this? Or what did Jesus mean when he said that? You you realize very quickly, in order to answer that question, I can't just simply quote the verse back to them. The question is about the verse. I need something that takes that statement or that verse and explains what that verse or what this doctrine means. Not just what it says, but what it means, and sometimes even what it does not mean. So one of the benefits of creeds and confessions is that it gives us the ability to articulate not just simply what the Bible says, but what the Bible means. Number two, creeds and confessions summarize what we believe in concise statements. And let me add to that, one of the benefits of of these concise summaries of of doctrinal points whether it's about justification or sanctification particularly the older confessions and creeds is that they continue to exist for a reason they continue to exist because even though they're hundreds of years old no one has been able to improve upon what has been produced in this confession. Well we're not going to do better than that let's just ride that one out, right? So it's not just simply that it gives you a good summary or a concise explanation for what the scriptures teach, but it does so, especially the well-established confessions and creeds, it does so in a way that really is very difficult, if not impossible, to beat. Number three, creeds and confessions help us distinguish between the non-negotiables, things like God's Trinitarian existence, the full divinity and the full humanity of Christ, things that are important— and then things that are really matters of indifference. So how does a church what? Uh, I'm trying to think of a matter of indifference that would be in a in a confession or a or a creed. What? <laughs> yeah. Now, what color carpet should you have in your church? Well, what does the confession of faith say? Right? It, it's not going to give you that. If odds are pretty good that if in some of these standard time-tested creeds and confessions, if it's not addressed or articulated in there, it's probably not that important, all right? I'm not saying it's not important. Let me give you an example of, of one that is important, but that would not be addressed. There, there are times in which you begin to see that every age, where while human nature remains the same, there are unique challenges that come to each specific age. So the fact that the... That the um, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith does not have any statement here in the anthropology section on transgenderism. Ought not to be taken as, well, it doesn't matter what the church believes about transgenderism. Rather, we say, with wisdom, Well, actually, the reason it doesn't say anything about transgenderism in the 1689 confession is because no one in their right mind would have had any conception of something like that in 1689, okay? So that's one example of where it is possible that there are important things that the church has to address that you won't find in a creator confession just because of the challenges that the church faces in every new age. But by and large, in terms of the things that really matter, you'll find almost everything articulated in one way or another or at least touched on or addressed in these reliable creeds and confessions. And, and I would say that even though it may not speak to a specific issue that is unique to us, it will have enough in there of the truth that will make it very clear that something like the transgender issue is just completely out of bounds with the Christian faith and what the Scriptures teach, even though it doesn't use that term at all. Okay, number. F- uh, sorry, Andy. Yeah, the Bible itself has creeds and confessions. So a creed in the Bible, for example, would be um, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Right? That's a creed, a statement of what we believe about God and how he's revealed himself to us. That would be a creed. There would be confessions when Paul says, this is a trustworthy statement. That's a, a creed or a confessional statement. What we mean when we talk about creeds and confessions here, once again, is that this is, this is man's attempt, These, this is the Christian attempt to say, here's what God has given us in his word. What, are the, what is a good overview or summary of the essential teachings of the church or what is the doctrines that, the, that a Christian must believe in order to be considered part of the holy apostolic faith, right? Starting with Christ and the apostles, transmitted from one generation to another. That's, what's attempt, that's what they're attempting to articulate in these creeds and confessions, okay? All right, number four. Creeds and confessions remind us that we are one people across time and space. That is, that the church is one people across time and space. When I read something from 1689, or when I read one of the creeds from the 4th century, I'm being reminded of the fact that the faith that I am holding to, the faith that I confess is the faith that Christians thousands of years ago also held and confessed as well. We are not inventing something new. We are trying to, as Jude says, to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Number five, creeds and confessions also provide content for praise and prayer. One of the things that you would, I think you would, you would actually be surprised is that when you read some of the creeds and confessions, at times, precisely because creeds and confessions will stretch you, right? It will, it will bring to your, your, um, your sight things that you had perhaps not thought of or that you had not emphasized before, right? Your, your mind will be stretched. Your heart will be enlarged. It, will actually, it can actually work as an aid to your worship and to your prayer. God becomes very big when you begin to see that so much of the Christian faith or the reality that we're in, we're just barely scratching the surface, right? The creeds about who God is and how he exists, the mystery of God's being and existence. At a certain point, you just have to throw up your hands and just say, I can't comprehend you, but I'll worship you. That being said, coming to theology and tradition, Two simple ways to think, um, to think about uh, theology. If, if you are suspicious of theology because you think it's just a way that people just sort of are tinkering with their own pet ideas or with uh, getting on hobby horses or something like that. And once again, for the sake of our discussion tonight, we're assuming that we're talking about good theology here. There is bad theology, crummy theology but as far as good theology is concerned, two quotes that I found very helpful. One by John Webster, who says that theology is the self-articulation of the Christian tradition. And similarly, Glenn Butner in, one of, uh, in a book uh, wrote that, the, that theology is the conceptual clarity concerning who God must be or what God must have done given the scriptural teaching. Listen, both of those statements are just an attempt to say this. All theology is doing, right, if you wanted to make it as simple as possible, you don't have to overcomplicate over it. All theology is trying to do is trying to say, in light of what God has said in his word, how are we to understand this, right? Give me understanding so that I'll know. And it's trying to take all the riches of scripture and pull the strands together in ways that make sense to us, in ways that are ordered to help us in our understanding. So theology, both old and new, the best kind of theology, is not criticizing the Scriptures, it's not trying to reinvent the Scriptures, it is rather, if it's faithful theology, it is taking the Scriptures as God's Word, as God's truth, and then it is, in a second mode of speaking, trying to say, And in light of what God has said, here's what we can know about God and about what he does. That's theology. So, reasons that we need theology. Number one, theology is necessary to organize and comprehend Scripture. By nature, we organize and we systematize things. If you think that you're a person who does not have or who does not work in theological categories you're sadly mistaken, right? Anytime that you begin to to explain how salvation works, what Christ's mission was, what Christ meant or didn't mean in this statement or that, you're automatically doing theology in some shape or form. The question is, do you recognize that you have a theology, and is it good or bad? Everyone works in theology. Number two. Theology is necessary to explain connections in Scripture and to establish doctrinal boundaries. So as we begin to get a framework for Scripture, we're able then to more more efficiently or more accurately connect one passage passage of Scripture with another or bring one passage of Scripture to bear on another passage. So when one passage of Scripture says something like, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king, But then another passage of scripture says, the Lord does not regret and does not change his mind like a man does. How are you gonna square those two statements? You're gonna have to do theology, right? And, And that's a good thing. Number three, theology increases our awe and wonder of God. The best kind of theology will inevitably bring you over and over again to the realization that God is far, far bigger than what you can even begin to imagine. Right? Lewis said one time, and I wish I could remember the exact quote. It, I don't know. It may actually be in this excerpt here that we'll read in just a second. said that he had found in his own personal experience, and I'll, I'll amen this, that oftentimes people who read the devotional books and who find it doing nothing would get far more out of their time with the Lord if they pulled out a theology book. And he says, if you read it with a pipe in your teeth and a pencil in your hand. All right? Now, as Baptists, we can't condone the pipe in the teeth, right? <laughs> but pencil in the hand. All right? His point was, what we want is we want something to awe us, right? A-W-E, we want to be awed. We want to be brought face-to-face with the wonder of who God is. And one of the ways that that happens best, is with good theology, right? To show us the riches of who God is and what he is. So on that note, let me, let me wrap up my time by turning your attention to this excerpt of an essay from Lewis. And this is my appeal to you through Lewis to say not only should you read more, more books that will help you become a better reader and studier and lover of God's word, but I'll also say that one of the best things that you can do is as you're reading theology, as you're reading creeds and confessions, as you're reading books, to look for good old books and creeds and confessions. Listen to what Lewis says. This is an introduction that Lewis provided to a reprint of um, the, uh, the book On the Incarnation by uh, Athanasius. So back in the early centuries of the Christian church, it was being uh, republished, and Lewis wrote an introduction. In part, Lewis says this, Naturally, since I myself am a writer, I do not wish the ordinary reader to read no modern books, but if he must read only the new or only the old, I would advise him to read the old. And I would give him this advice precisely because he is an amateur and therefore much less protected than the expert against the dangers of an exclusive contemporary diet. A new book is still on its trial, and the amateur is not in a position to judge it. It has to be tested against the great body of Christian thought down the ages and all its hidden implications, often unsuspected by the author himself, have to be brought to light. Often it cannot be fully understood without the knowledge of a good many other modern books. If you join at 11 o'clock a conversation which began at 8, you will often not see the real bearing of what is said. Remarks which seem to you very ordinary will produce laughter or irritation, and you will not see why. The reason, of course being that the earlier stages of the conversation have given them a special point. In the same way, sentences in a modern book which look quite ordinary may be directed at some other book. In this way, you may be led to accept what you would have indignantly rejected if you knew its real significance. The only safety is to have a standard of plain, central Christianity, mere Christianity, as Baxter called it, which puts the controversies of the moment in their proper perspective. Such a standard can be acquired only from the old books. It is a good rule after reading a new book never to allow yourself another new one till you have read an old one in between. If that's too much for you, you should at least read one old one to every three new ones. That would not be a bad habit to develop, by the way. Every age, Lewis says, has its own outlook. This is very helpful. Every age has its own outlook. It is specially good at seeing certain truths and specially liable to to make certain mistakes. We all, therefore, need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period, and that means the old books. All contemporary writers share, to some extent, the contemporary outlook, even those like myself who seem most opposed to it. Nothing strikes me more when I read the controversies of past ages than the fact that both sides were usually assuming, without question, a good deal which we should now absolutely deny. They thought that they were as completely opposed as two sides could be, but in fact they were all the time secretly united, united with each other and against earlier and later ages by a great mass of common assumptions. We may be sure that the characteristic blindness of the 20th century The blindness about which posterity will ask, but how could they have thought that, lies where we have never suspected it and concerns something about which there is untroubled agreement between Hitler and President Roosevelt or between Mr. H.G. Wells and Karl Barth. None of us can fully escape this blindness, but we shall certainly increase it and weaken our guard against it if we read only modern books. Where they are true, they will give us truths which we half knew already. Where they are false, they will aggravate the error with which we are already dangerously ill. The only palliative is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds, and this can be done only by reading old books. Not, of course, that there is any magic about the past. People were no cleverer then than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. They will not flatter us in the errors we are already committing, and their own errors, being now open and palpable, will not endanger us. Two heads are better than one, not because either is infallible, but because they are unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. To be sure, the books of the future would be just as good a corrective as the books of the past, but unfortunately we cannot get at them. So since we can't get to the books of the future that'll be correcting our mistakes in hindsight, Go back and read the old books because you'll be able to see more clearly some of the errors and some of the assumptions that we make today, all right? Oof. Okay, we're out. I'm, I'm going to close and I'm going to cap it right here. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the, uh, for the patience of everyone seat, uh, seated here listening. Do help us, Father, to grow in our love and our admiration of your word. And in that love for your word, to seek whatever kind of advantages or tools or assistance that we can find to make us better readers, better interpreters, better understanding, um, better uh, of your uh, scriptures so that we would grow in all respects in this salvation that you have given us. Thank you for this time tonight. Be with us as we go about our week now. In Jesus' name, amen.